Welcome to Staples. Staples guy, my New Year's resolution is to get new customers in the door. Well, Staples has everything you need to promote your business. Signs, pens, mugs, you name it. Perfect. And right now, you can get 15% off custom banners and posters. 15% off? <laughs> That's one resolution off my list. Oh, how many were there? Just the one. Then, Happy New Year. This year, resolve to promote your business at Staples. And right now, get 15% off custom banners and posters. Staples, make more happen. Offer ends 32417. See a Staples associate for details. Blog Talk Radio. I'm Phil Bowermaster, and you're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of the Speculist weblog, and you can find us online at speculist.com. That's S-P-E-C-U-L-I-S-T dot com. This podcast is all about the future, all about emerging technologies, all about positive change, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Man, I'm excellent. Feeling so much better than I did last week. And so, yeah. You are sounding better. I, I think, feel better. I yeah. think writing that post about how healthcare should work helped you expunge the virus faster. I yeah, think. well, it made me feel better, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, what, what it was about uh, for the audience is that, uh, you know, I just completely dissatisfied with the state of the art in 2007 of, of fighting viral, you know, colds. Um, right. And, you know, there's not much to do that, except for go home and let it run its course. And uh, uh, looking forward to the day when there is something more that can be done. Well, what I, what I like about that piece is it speaks to the fact that, you know, the, the worst part anymore about having a cold isn't so much all the symptoms, which are annoying, uh, I mean, which can, can, can slow you down and, and hold back your day. But the worst part is it's just it's so annoying and it feels so uh, pointless. And yeah, it seems like really we ought to be able to do something about this. It's, it's the old, if we can put a man on the moon. <laughs> That's right. Then what in the world are we still doing messing around with uh, with something so basic? But it turns out the common cold isn't all that basic because it's it's not really one thing. It's 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 uh, you know they, they give you those kind of symptoms. It's all these different viruses that that affect you in similar ways, and, and so... And they are those small, very sophisticated little enemies that we're dealing with there, really, so... Yeah. Quite, quite an army of them, too. So. Well, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, Phil. Uh, very nice, very nice. Had the whole family in town, and uh, we ate just tons and tons of food. Finally packed them all out of here uh, a little bit earlier this afternoon, and, uh, you know, starting the long road to uh, recovery. But uh, how about yourself? Oh, it was great. Um, I was uh, got well fast enough to really enjoy the holiday and and uh, got out there and I do what I do every year, which is uh, smoke the turkey. I, I don't we don't put it in the oven. Uh, I don't like that. It's it's dried out in my right. opinion when you when you bake a turkey. And so we, I put it in the smoker and. Um, Man, it's uh, if if uh, if you ever if you ever have it that way, you won't be satisfied with it any other way. Uh, I'm big I'm big fan of smoked turkey. We also like uh, fried turkey, which also oh yeah, which is also good. Yeah, also from Louisiana. So yeah, 
You guys know from how to make turkey down there. Yeah, well, I, I tell you, uh, the further south you go in this state, the, m- the more people know about food. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, Louisiana has some good food, no doubt about that. Unfortunately, we uh, did not do well this this weekend in, uh, in football, though. Well, see, now I wasn't going to bring it up if you didn't. But. Well, I kind of, I kind of need to since we've been going, you know, following LSU so closely for what about a couple months now? Yeah, we have ever, you know, ever since uh, oh, very near the beginning of the season. So, LSU versus Arkansas. Um, actually, I wasn't watching it. I was watching the Colorado Nebraska game at the time, which was a much more satisfying game. But they kept showing the scores, and it sounds like that was, a, you know, except for the ending. Um, a uh, very exciting game. Well, it was. Um, there is a there is a uh, an offensive player, uh, Darren McFadden, uh, on on the Arkansas team, who's you know he's a Heisman Trophy contender, and uh, just an excellent excellent uh, player. And it really was the offense. It was it was Arkansas's offense, their ability to overcome what had been you know the best defense in college ball. They overcame it to, you know, and they made incredible yardage on LSU. Obviously, the score was, you know, they they got fifty points, you know. Um, of course, of course, LSU got forty-eight, and so it, it and it was like what, two or three overtimes. I, I lost. I believe it was the, it, the third overtime when uh, what finally happened was the uh, Arkansas got a two-point conversion on the touchdown. LSU still managed to come back, score a touchdown but then failed to get the two-point conversion, which, uh, according to the announcers for the Colorado game, is exactly how they lost to Kentucky. Earlier. Yeah, and, and also in the third overtime. Uh, that's, I guess those, third, the, the, those overtimes have been kind of brutal on LSU this, this year. Now, that, this, basically, this loss basically puts them out of the uh, – I think that it's, it would be just about impossible for them to finish the season number one. Which is a shame. They they really thought that they could do it this year, and they've done it in the past. Uh, but um, they they had they certainly were in the running for this year. But it doesn't appear that that's going to be the case. Now I believe that they will go to a bowl game, um, and so yeah, they, they they've had a great season, and, and uh, LSU has a lot to be proud of. It, it, but they got to get themselves back together to play again this week, and then they get a break, I believe. So oh, okay. But the national championship looks like that's now out of the picture for them. Yeah, it appears appears to be the case that that's out of the picture. So, I, I just want to point out, while before I talk a little bit about Colorado sports, very briefly, and, and then we move on to you know the future and some of that stuff that uh, the show is related to. We're having kind of an interesting chat here uh, in our uh, fast forward radio chat room about uh, what things are good and bad for you. Um, one of well, our, one of our I, I wouldn't think of uh, Thanksgiving meals necessarily being a great thing for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, what's interesting was the first the first comment was I thought smoked is bad for you, and I have to say you know I don't think fried is all that great for you either. And actually, uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, probably even a even a uh, roasted turkey once you start laying on the mashed potatoes and the gravy and the, the stuffing and all that stuff, it's all about moderation. I'm thinking. Well, I, if there's one day of the year that moderation ought to be placed to the side, it's Thanksgiving. I mean, we all, we all have a right to have one feast a year, right? That's right. And uh, so, I, I, you know, it was funny. They, I, uh, I promised myself I wouldn't, you know, go back. No seconds this year. And so, there were, and my family was laughing at me. My plate looked like, you know, 
<laughs> it was, it was, Since you're yeah, not going for seconds, I'm not going for seconds, but the first, I'm going to make the, the first to help him count. And so uh, it was not just that, uh, the, it was that my plate was piled wide on the plate, it was also piled high. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, Very good. It was fun. We, uh, and, and, and the company was great and everything. And so, but yeah, have you ever noticed that uh, after Thanksgiving meal, it's hard to sit through the ball game? Um, well, yeah. I mean, hopefully you're in a comfy chair and you can just kind of snooze. Yeah, which I did, and you I think everybody does. The, I think it's the turkey that does the that. The turkey, yeah, that's that tryptophan, I believe, is the chemical in the turkey that uh, causes you to causes you to sleep. I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, one feast a year. But over this past four days, I think I managed about five feasts. <laughs> is, is the whole problem with with that model? Anyway, just real quickly, you know, not to brag or anything, but Colorado did win their game. So not that they're going to, you know, had any shot at being national champions, but uh, they will get to go to a bowl game now, so that's kind of cool. And they beat arch-rival Nebraska, which uh, that was nice to see. Denver Broncos, uh, you know, they hadn't played their game when we spoke last week, and then on Monday night they won, and then today they lost. So it's kind of a mixed bag. I just well, there you go. You, you, you know, let's talk. You know, if we're going to mention it. Let's mention the win on Monday night, right? <laughs> That's right. That was exciting. That was a great game. Actually, it was a real exciting game today for Chicago fans, but uh, uh, not so great for not so great for Denver fans. But well, you had a, um, something interesting. Another interesting thing happened this week. You got a chance to visit with Dave Gobel and. Uh, Tell us. Let's set this up a little bit. Tell us who he is. Well, Dave is the co-founder of the Methuselah uh, Foundation, which which runs the uh, Methuselah Mouse Prize. This is the um, like the X Prize. It's a push prize, which is intended to um, reward researchers who can produce uh, a very long lived mouse. Um, if um, if we can, if we, the idea being, if we can achieve longevity in mice, if we can find a way to uh, to make mice live indefinitely, that's going to open up techniques that that would eventually be applied to people. So, Dave uh, is the co-founder of that group. You know, we uh, interviewed Aubrey de Grey on this show. What's been about a year and a half ago, I would say. Not yeah, that's, that's about right. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And at the time, the plan was that uh, the two of us would actually be talking with both Aubrey and Dave. And unfortunately, due to some scheduling trouble, we weren't able to get Dave on the phone at the same time that we spoke to Aubrey. So we have been trying to arrange an interview with Dave ever since and finally managed to pull that off this week. Um, And, uh, yeah, I don't know what to say about the interview other than uh, it's, it's just great fun talking to him. He has tremendous insights, tremendous perspectives, and uh I think uh, everyone will enjoy listening to what he has to say. Well, let's let's uh, let's listen then. Okay. We are pleased to welcome to the program David Goebel. David is the chief executive officer of the Methuselah Foundation, which is an organization whose charter is nothing less than to reverse or preempt the damage of aging and the unimaginable suffering that this continues to inflict. Dave Goebel, welcome to the program. Thank you, Phil. Now, I wanted to start out and talk a little bit about the Methuselah Foundation, and I thought maybe you could uh, give us some background on how that all got started. How did you get the idea for founding this organization, and uh, how did you initially get it going? Um, well, as a a combination of things is 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 typical 
I do a lot of volunteer work, and uh, so does my family. And uh, one of the uh, results of that is that you run into people of a variety of uh, backgrounds and uh, status and situations. One of those was that uh, um, I began to notice a pattern of some of the older friends and uh, folks that we helped uh, where they were terrific one day and the next day they had Parkinson's or got a stroke or fell backwards down uh, the stairs because their grip strength wasn't enough to hold on to the handrail and died or got, uh, you know, pretty pretty nasty stuff. And <clears throat> I started connecting the dots and thought to myself, this is kind of ridiculous. Most people think of old people as, uh, well, you know, you've served your purpose, you've done your duty, it's time for you to get out of the way, which feels very evil to me. But up until this era, there wasn't much that could be done about it, so people sublimated those those uh, feelings that it was horrible and um, decided that since it was natural, it was okay, like granola. <laughs> so, <clears throat> But at least granola tastes good sometimes, right? Put enough, <laughs> yeah. put enough brown sugar in it. Sure, sure, but... Uh, you know, just because it's natural doesn't mean it's good. So um, aging is more like living on the side of a volcan- an active volcano. It's going to get you. I remember um, a few years back the former governor of Colorado, Dick Lamb, gave a uh, an address to some seniors in which he actually used the phrase duty to die. We, we, we have a duty to die to get out of the way and make room for uh, the uh, – the next generation coming along, and that's always struck me as just you know, one an unbelievably callous thing to say, but two um, something that it, you know would a person could you ever conceivably say that unless you were just sort of giving in to what you what you perceive to be the inevitable? Right. I mean, you wouldn't say that to a healthy young person that they have a duty to die. I don't uh, yeah, that wouldn't make sense. But so uh, so we tend to classify people. As, as a way of making our lives uh, simpler. Simpler doesn't uh, help sometimes. Simpler doesn't get us to the right answer sometimes. So, um, anyway. Um, so, one so day, you're struck by this problem, and, and where, does that, where does that lead you? <clears throat> well, I wanted to end it. And uh, started looking at why it hadn't been ended. Part part of it was why aren't there any cures? If you think about um, medical history, most of the cures have come about from special circumstances. There's a difference between cures and treatments. You can go to any drugstore today, go to over over the counter stuff, and get treatments um, that will never cure the problem. We still get colds. We still have asthma. We still have diabetes. Right. <clears throat> and you think about cures, many, if not most of them, came about because of military necessity. In order to build the Panama Canal, you got to get rid of yellow fever. So you cure it. <laughs> <laughs> you have uh, incredible expenditure from... Uh, uh, veterans who are wounded, and so you develop incredibly good surgical techniques for battlefield wounds. 
um, and so on and so forth. So you ask in the civilian world what was the last thing that was cured, and the answer would be polio. I was just about to say polio. Now, was there a military uh, uh, need driving that? or is, is that, that, No, you just lifted that as one on the civilian side. That's right. And so I began to look at that one historically to say, well, how come that one is different? And the answer is it was an excruciatingly special circumstance that sort of proves the thesis. And is this going to be FDR? Is this the reason that polio? Uh, well, it was more than just FDR. Okay. First, uh, we, we're very used to charities today, like the American Cancer Society and this society and this foundation and that foundation. Right. <clears throat> but in, in those days, the uh, idea of a charity was fairly new and novel, and the law, were, uh, not so much the law, but the, the medical research community was uh, in an infant stage. So... Um, you had this thing called the March of Dimes, which was literally about dimes because it was going on during the Depression. And you had a three-time president who happened to have polio. And you had somebody running the March of Dimes who is uh, almost unknown to the world, but you could say that he was as much as anybody responsible for the cure. That's, what's interesting about that is I associate... President Roosevelt with the March of Dimes, and in my head, anyway, I thought that he was the founder and the driving force behind the March of Dimes, and now I'm about to learn different. Is that right? That's right. The okay. man's name was Basil O'Connor. Basil O'Connor. He was a New York lawyer, personal friend of uh, Roosevelt, <clears throat> and for decades, he headed the uh, March of Dimes for free um, as its uh, president and made very, very difficult decisions, uh, which resulted in faster progress than would have been expected um, and uh, a sole focus on a cure. Well, another thing was that uh, this was a disease that wasn't uh, attacking a particular demographic. It cut across all demographics, rich, highly educated, dirt poor, they all had the same uh, risk to their children. Right. So our biology and our sympathy goes heavily and deeply toward children. And finally, another component of this was the excruciatingly high lifetime cost of those who didn't die, living in iron lungs and the pitiful state of watching your children be in these iron lungs and, and the terror that it might strike. So all of those things... Um, conspired, you might say, to solve the problem. So you may recall at the end there was a, 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 a real dust-up between the live and dead virus uh, camps between Salk and Sabin. Uh, Sabin making the, the uh, statement or have the opinion that Salk's vaccine was going to kill people. Wow. Because it was a live virus. And uh, Sabin's uh, backers uh, making the the uh, appeal to O'Connor and the March of Dimes to actually cut off Salk's funding, that it was a criminal thing to keep funding him. Anyway, <clears throat> it turned out that Salk's vaccine worked. Right. And uh, that it was two years, I think, earlier than Sabin's vaccine and thus protected 
two years' worth of people who would have been with no protection. And I happened to be part of that uh, that world. At that time, I was a youngster. Right. I got okay. a vaccine. And so... You got uh, one of the Salk vaccines, or do you know which one you got? I think it was the Salk. I'm not really sure. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so... So I remembered that as part of my thinking about um, how can we drive toward cures, and I realized that these were there was just a confluence of a number of very special circumstances that might happen once every thousand years, <laughs> and that wasn't good enough. Right. So, so that's when I began looking for a model. Uh, so keep in mind that what I'm really trying to do is to prevent diseases. Why that? What's that got to do with aging? Because diseases, or uh, yeah, diseases are the falling off the cliff phenomenon. If you keep walking toward the cliff and walking toward the cliff, well, doggone it, you're going to fall over the cliff sooner or later. Right. And that falling over the cliff is the disease that you get. Well, the 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 relationship between those two things becomes very clear uh, if you read Aubrey de Grey's book fighting aging, it seems to me, that um, once once you start to recognize that all these different kinds of accumulation of damage that, that occur, that, that Aubrey has classified, that, that really constitute and define what aging is, ultimately they all you know, result in or make you vulnerable to one disease or another. So so when you listed those diseases earlier, you said, you know, we haven't cured diabetes. And you think, well, and we've never really um, eliminated Alzheimer's. You know, we can't, we can't cure Alzheimer's. We haven't eliminated heart disease, all these things that kill us. If you, um, is it fair to say, let me, let me pose it this way, if you find an effective way to deal with aging, a lot of these things are going to come along for the ride. Absolutely. Okay. The way I think of it is... Um uh, no one in their right mind would live in a toxic waste dump. You know, as soon as that's found, the Superfund attacks it, and people are moved, and you couldn't sell that land on a bet. Um, and and so then think of your own body as a toxic waste dump. After a while, that's what it becomes. Right. And so we need to... <laughs> have a super fund to clean it up. <laughs> okay, so enter the Methuselah Foundation and and the Emprise. So, um how did you how did you get it uh how did you get it started and and what's the current status okay. of the Well, first I had to figure out what modality to use. So, remember I was looking for cures and I wanted to find a uh uh, uh the reason why the cures weren't happening. And okay. the quick answer to the reason the cures weren't happening was because the time to develop a pharmaceutical intervention and the money is somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 years and half a billion dollars. So imagine this. A scientist comes into your office, you're the finance committee, um, and the scientist says, I think I figured out a way where one pill uh, with a cost of a dollar could cure cancer. Wow. If, if you walked into that into the committee... Or, or actually, a better example would be diabetes. <laughs> okay. You go in front of the pharmaceutical board, and, re- and this this corporation is making three billion a year on insulin and uh, related products. You come in and say you're going to cure it. 
what's the thought, what's that group going to do? They're going to say, <clears throat> well, let's see. We're going to spend a half billion dollars. It's going to take 15 years. And it's going to it run works, us out of business. If, if it works, it's going to run us out of business. And it probably won't work. Right. And who knows what's going to happen over 15 years. That's, that's an eternity in the investment world. So they'll pat the guy on the back, thank him very much, and ask for the next uh, proposal. These are not bad people. These are people making rational decisions because their first allegiance by law must be fiduciary responsibility. They've got to make money for the shareholders. That's right? exactly right. Okay. That's their first allegiance, and they'll be sued and go to jail if they don't follow that. So, anyway, that's what led to prizes. I read Davis Sobel's novel, Longitude, about the Longitude Prize, <clears throat> and it just seemed to me that it was the straightest line between the two points. And uh, that's where the idea of using prizes came from. So if money is going to drive anything anyway, drive everything anyway, get, get the money rewarding the correct behavior. That's exactly right. So a prize is like the moon. It just sits there. It shines down and says, come and get me. It has no politics. It can't be gamed. It can't be argued with. It can't be uh, uh, beguiled. Look at me. I'm a, I'm a Ph.D. or I'm a beautiful woman. The moon just doesn't care. Right. It's Can you get here? Soul uh, rationale, uh, a soul criteria. <clears throat> and so in this case, um, that led to the M Prize to reverse aging in model experimental mice. And... What is the current status of the prize? How much? How much is it? And who is, who will it be awarded to? Or or has some been awarded to date? Or, or just kind of where are we with the with the prize? Okay, so the prize amount is uh, just north of four and a half million dollars. Wow, um, that's other, a good chunk of money. Thank you. Other prizes. Well, thank our donors. Uh, other prizes um, are announced with a target number. We haven't announced the target number. We just want to keep having it grow and grow and grow because it increases the attractiveness, obviously, and thereby the number of participants. Right now we have about 10 teams that are uh, pursuing the prize, and we would like gradually for uh, you know every university in the world to begin to you know, get involved. That's, that's part of the value of the prize idea because it's... Uh, uh, somewhere between 16 and 50 to 1 leverage for every dollar in a, a well-posed uh, prize um, generates 16 to 50 dollars in other people's investment into solving the problem. Plus that's an amazing ratio, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's just remarkable. That's that's some tremendous leverage you're getting. So so a, round it down to four million. That's saying you're that 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 anywhere from uh, What'd you say? Sixty-five million dollars. Forty million dollars being five, anywhere from sixty-five million to two hundred and fifty million effective weight, and it operates under a power curve. So that the higher the amount of the prize, the even more the the leveraged ratio, until you get to prizes like going to the moon, which is a political prize or being first to have the atomic bomb, another political prize. Right. In this case, 
it's not uh, money that is the award, but it's survival. Right. Whether uh, whether it be in a cold or a hot war, but you think about how long would it have taken to have gotten a an atomic bomb without a war <laughs> to drive it? Not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying think about the amount of time. Yeah. It would have taken. What 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 would the motivation have been? There there would have been right. nothing driving that happen. But it's a, an even more interesting example of this. The effectiveness of prizes is something that history has forgotten. But because I was intent on learning everything I could, um, I, I dug it up, and that was um, Napoleon had a pretty nasty experience in Russia, and he learned the the value of having food to feed an army. You know, right? It's not bullets that make an army work in those days; it's food. Right. <clears throat> so the Russians were pretty clever about that. First, they arranged for winter. <laughs> and, and second, they burned all the food along the way. So, when he got back, Napoleon issued a requirement to the French Academy of Sciences to have a prize for food preservation in the field, food that would survive at least six months so that they could feed an army. Well, after a little while, a French chef named Nicolas Appert A-P-P-E-R-T for you Wikipedia fans, (laughs) Um, uh, discovered after lots of trial and error that if you put food in a bottle, took all the air out of it, uh, boiled the stink out of it, and then put a wax cork in the stopper in the top, that the stuff would be okay. So invented the canning process that... Bottling and canning. Everybody's mom and grandma uses. Uh, That's right. Thank you for the summary. <laughs> now, <clears throat> that is the most important invention in history. Pretty bald statement. I was just going to say, wait, what, what about uh, the iPod? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I lost my mind. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, that is a bold statement. So, uh, why why is... Um, I mean, I can certainly see that it's, a, that it's a huge impact, but why is preserving food the most important invention in history? Okay. Um, famine, wherever there is pervert, uh, preserved uh, food, famine ceases to exist. Okay. Where famine ceases to exist, populations grow and lifespans grow. When populations grow and lifespans grow, knowledge opportunity grows. When knowledge opportunity grows and the number of people who have knowledge grows, then you get a massively parallel processing biological computer. So, uh-huh. so what Napoleon wanted uh, as a means of feeding a- an army, you're now saying is what what has made it possible to feed kind of the whole human army of developers. Yeah. Okay. So. <clears throat> So he invented this, I think it was like uh, early 1800s, but by 1812, I believe it is, canning came into the scene. Mm -hmm. And then with that, since 1840, if you look at the typical uptake time for, or proliferation time for a, a radical new technology, it usually takes about 20 years, 15 to 20 years in our era like when the laser phenomenon was discovered, it took 20 years for 
that uh, technology to find its way into actual products. Right. So since this was so long ago, in the early 1800s, we'll say that it took a little bit longer, maybe 30 years. Well, by 1840, the lifespan of the uh, most advanced, in the most advanced uh, country, Sweden at the time probably, from 1840 to today, every year for 160 plus years, the human lifespan has been increasing a quarter year or three months a year, every year. And this is since the introduction of That's canning. Right. Okay. okay. Since the introduction of canning. And how much did it cost? 20,000 francs. Wow. So you take a look at all human history prior to that time, and famine was just an accepted cost of doing business. Right. And then one day someone says, hey, <laughs> let's fix it. But why? For military reasons. It's insane. But... If you ask yourself which human being in history is most responsible for the saving of human lives after Jesus Christ, it would have been Napoleon. <laughs> Not somebody I would have guessed off the top of my head, I have to say. Yeah. That's astounding. So, let's let's bring this back to um let's bring this back to the, su- the subject of aging. Mhm. So, what what you're looking to do is with the uh with the emprise replicate that level of impact. That's in fact, right. That's right. In so fact, we're going to have something even ex- bigger than canning, I would think. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, it's the next step from canning. Okay. And and so, um, so canning led to people living longer, having more opportunity to get longer educations and longer careers so that they could have more and more impact. Um, and so that's why you keep getting this longevity dividend that we tend to think of as a medical or a sanitation dividend. Um, So uh, what this prize is designed to do is to take that 0.25 per year and increase it above 0.25 to eventually uh, 1.0 or higher, which means that for every year you live, your chances of living the next year are at least as good as your chances of living this year. This is what Ray Kurzweil describes as escape velocity. Or um, actually, or that's something that uh, I came up with. Oh, okay. This is uh, this is a term that Ray Kurzweil stole from you called uh, escape velocity. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the, the first use of that term, not the idea, but the term that uh, I know of, is when I send an email um, out to uh, Peter Diamandis. Uh, the the founder of the X Prize. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was saying that we should have uh, lifespan reach escape velocity, and then Aubrey picked up the terminology and called it actuarial escape velocity. So, so that's yeah, obviously, and and Ray didn't steal anything, but I, the, I know that's where I first encountered the term. <laughs> It's a terrific idea, but but the idea is a compelling picture of um, every year you add a year of lifespan to your life. If you can can keep that going, there's Mm -hmm. there's no uh, expiration date. That's right. That's right. And so um, so the the first value of a prize is that it changes the uh, the taboos. So 
when we started the prize, the idea of reversing human aging or, or living very, very long lives was like Ponce de Leon, uh, <laughs> uh, Fountain of Youth kind of stuff, just something to laugh at. Right. <clears throat> or something to to prevent, like uh, you mentioned before, the fellow who says people have a duty to die. Yeah, I mean, there, there are those who would make the case, and I'm still do make the case, that you're actually working against the social good by trying to extend human life. Right. I'm, I'm sure you encounter that attitude all the time. Um, so the interesting thing is we've we encountered that all the time when we started. Mm-hmm. But the interesting thing about a, a prize, if you think about <clears throat> racing, uh, almost all of car racing is against the law except for the fact that there's an event that we call a race. Okay. Right? right? You go and take your car in uh, downtown L.A. and go 200 miles an hour and see how long you last. Right. However, if you organize it into a race, all of a sudden, instead of people wanting you to put you in the slammer, they're cheering you on to go even faster. Uh Aha. Aha. It's crazy, isn't it? That is crazy. That's that's the value of a prize. It takes what is socially unacceptable for whatever reasons um, and then turns it into a positive good where the the public actually cheers you on. So uh, if you're just a guy saying, hey, we got to do something about aging, then you've got the, the buzzkill saying... You're you're a nut job and, and you're gonna you're gonna hurt the world. But if you put the emprise in place and, and it's a big it's it's a nonprofit and, and it's clearly doing work and, and there's a there's a goal that researchers start working towards that actually is it fair to say actually changes the public discourse around this subject? It absolutely does. Okay. You can think of it as an umbrella. The the naysaying, uh, the nabobs of negativity are like the the dark drizzling rain and uh, the the prize is an umbrella under which those who would like to be audacious can go and they can point to the prize and say well gee I'm just doing it you know for the glory and the good and, and the money and they can then get investors because there's some money at the end of the, uh, of the rainbow right they can get glory uh, and most importantly, they can keep their careers. If you do it by yourself, you are really sticking out. But if there's ten teams going after the same thing, well, then your your uh, uh, social pariah status uh, goes way, way down, and in fact, you become a hero of science. And that is actually what we have seen. I, I, I'm astounded at how quickly the conversation has turned from uh, you can't do it to you mustn't do it to you shouldn't do it to it can be done, but we shouldn't do it to it will be done. And, well, since it will be done, we might as well do it. So now the conversation is, um, should we let it happen naturally, or should we um, aggressively pursue the reversal of the damage of aging? So this is, you know, you, sh- you can think of 
uh, it's astounding how quickly that's changed. And we're well on our way. Would it, would it be fair to say to, to we must do it? We must do it as, as soon as possible. We are well on our way there. And why are we well on our day? Well on our way there because we have 72 million extremely rich, richer than any generation in history, baby boomers. Right. And who have been watching um, uh, TV shows that talk about uh, turning back age by using radical surgery, plastic surgery. And that is a huge growth business. Um, plus you have the most dangerous generation in history financially, and that would be the baby boomers again. Okay. We're going to bankrupt nations. Well, there's two ways of dealing with that. One is to um, uh, reduce benefits, which no politician wants to do that. Well, um, you're not going to get elected on that platform, are you? <laughs> um, have de facto euthanasia. That doesn't where, sound very good. Well, it's not everybody's favorite solution. Um, or another option, which is now viable, is to pursue uh, the removal of the frailty of aging. And so we, we save the economy by keeping the boomers alive, keeping them productive. Keeping uh, them healthy and productive, taxpayers. That's, that's an amazing argument. Um, and the boomers, of course, are, are on board with this because... They're hitting 60 now, and they've been they've been young for 60 years, and suddenly, you know, it's it's dawning on them that they're not young. Right. That, that there really is something to this whole you get older thing. I mean, <laughs> actually, feeling it in their bodies and seeing it uh, when they look in the mirror, and they want to do something about it. Right. And and there's this uh, there is a the fact uh, the the fact that uh, the rate of discovery and engineering capability is going continuing to go up exponentially so for instance you now instead of computer chips you now have bi uh, biolo biological chips that can um, uh, decode an individual's genome the important known genes for a thousand dollars today that means that you fill for a thousand dollars could find out the 50 to 500,000 genes that are currently researched uh, in your body and understand um, what your probabilities, possibilities in the future are as far as disease and can take steps today to do something about it. In fact, uh, if I could do a one moment of shameless self-promotion, we just mentioned that uh, capability and two companies that are providing that service in the most recent uh, Better All the Time blog feature on Speculist. So. Mm -hmm. And there are going to be many other companies who will do the same or similar things. So, so think of an individual's body as the last undiscovered country, the undiscovered land. Right. You, Phil, are a combination of 100 trillion body cells and 100 trillion bacterial entities who help you digest your food and do other things. So you're a colony organism of 200 trillion components. There are 200 trillion, uh, oh, I don't know, galaxies out there? Right, okay. So... Um, my point of view on all of this may be a little Star Trekian, but we are 
pocket universes. Wow. So as a pocket universe, I'm totally unexplored. This isn't an ego thing. It's just a fact. Right. Now, uh, how, how would you like to be in a pocket universe traveling at 200 miles an hour down the road with no headlights and it's totally dark? Think you might hit something? <laughs> it seems likely. So, it's a really empty pocket universe. Right. So the only, the only time anybody knows anything about these universes called human beings is when they get sick. That's a terrible time to try to learn about something. It's like the psychiatrist. Every time you meet a psychiatrist, you don't know if you want to be his friend because he's constantly trying to find out what's wrong with you, even when you feel fine. Why? Right. Because that's when that's what their training is. What's wrong? So understanding the human genome, understanding our individual uh, uh, g- genomes, is is the equivalent of being able to turn the headlights on driving down the. And and once those headlights are on, we're going to go, oh, my God, we are utterly, totally, thoroughly ignorant. And you ask yourself, Phil, if you were to take a look at your lifelong medical record, uh, how much information would there be? None. Virtually none. Very little. And so, you know, the doctor does not have access to... What did what happened to little Phil between the ages of five and ten? What was his basal uh, blood pressure, heart rate, glucose, um, you know, epigenetic gene expression? He has nothing to go on. And as a society, we have almost nothing to go on. Imagine if you could have your uh, medical history, mine, and uh, millions of other medical histories that would be anonymized. And then mind, you would find incredible insights that are simply unavailable, un, unfindable today. Right. So, with about seven minutes left in the show, let's mm-hmm. uh, let's let's bring this back to uh, to the Emprise and and what uh, what progress mm-hmm. is being made currently with with that. Right. So we had two prize winners. One is Dr. Andre Barkey. He um, had the uh, mouse that's the uh, world record holder for longevity. There are, there are in the particular mouse strain that we're examining, Mus musculus. There are lots of other uh, mice that may live longer in the wild, um, but you need to have a uh, a class of mouse that is comparable so that you have, can have teams compete. Right. See, uh, yeah, you can say lived longest comparable, yeah, as compared right. to other members of the same group. Of, That's right. Of so mice. there's another class of, of, of mouse called the bat, <laughs> and they live 20 years. Right. So, we, you know, we had to find a single class. So his uh, mouse lived just shy of five years, and which, which in human terms is somewhere above 150 years. Okay. Of course, and, you can't make a direct comparison, you know. But it's still indicative. Uh, a typical mouse would uh, have its maximum longevity end at three years. So it was a real uh, outlier. Right. This, uh, I mean, this is the longest-lived mouse of that class ever. Is that, that is scientifically first? documentable. Right. Okay. Um, then with the uh, the uh, reversal or the rejuvenation prize. The uh, first winner was Dr. Stephen Spindler. Uh, he took a group of experimental mice, not a one-off, but 
uh, an experimentally uh, valid group of mice and put them on a calorie restriction uh, regime for the first time when they were 19 months old, which would be the equivalent of like 55 in humans. Okay. So imagine no interventions. You've been eating whatever you felt like until you're 55. Then at 55, all of a sudden, you go on to a calorie restriction regime. Those mice that went on that regime uh, were able to live 15% longer than the regular group. So, so this indicates that calorie restriction is not something that has to be followed from birth or, or, or youth, yeah. that, that it, even at a fairly light stage it can be introduced with benefits. That's right. In mice, anyway. That's right. And so this reversed the damage of aging and slowed down the laying down of further damage. So that's why he won the inaugural rejuvenation prize, because that was the first experiment that actually proved that you could, at such a late age, introduce benefits to a population of mice. Now, how much of this becomes uh, translatable to what we can do for human beings? Uh, there's, there's discussion around how effective calorie restriction is, how, how effectively those benefits translate to human beings. And I don't know what techniques were used to make the other mouse live uh, to be five. Was, was, that, uh, was that also calorie restriction, or was that some other? It was uh, a growth hormone knockout gene that uh, turned the mouse into a dwarf mouse. And some would argue that that is similar to the uh, way the calorie restriction works. Oh, okay. Um, so working so, on some of the same mechanisms anyway. Exactly. Um, so my answer to your question, how much of this is translatable, nobody knows. Right. Okay. That's the real answer. That's, that's why you have to use a prize. The best time to use a prize is when you have no idea uh, what exactly to do to solve a problem. If you did, you'd just do that. So nobody in the world had any idea how to preserve food. In fact, they were probably pretty sure it couldn't be done. Right. Otherwise, somebody would have done it. So uh, if Nobody had any idea how to find longitude at sea. But the costs of losing fleet after fleet, <laughs> because you, didn't, you couldn't see, you, you couldn't know that you were about to hit a, uh, you know, the shoals near shore because you thought you were 60 miles away from the shore. Um, nobody had any idea how to solve that problem. But they thought they did. The astronomers thought that they knew what to do, but it turns out they had no clue. So what's the um, pathway, what's the timeline in your mind between the uh, Methuselah Mouse Prize and, say, the Methuselah Human Prize? Right, the uh, uh, the, uh -huh. the next stage where this becomes a uh, an, an effort to actually bring these benefits about for human beings. Well, I can't go into any great detail on this, but uh, Aubrey has come up with a very very powerful model for a human prize, <clears throat> and I have my own ideas. Uh, but um, let's just say that we're in active discussion with various parties on a human prize. The, the real problem with a human prize is you can't hide behind cute mice anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you have to get cute human subjects. Right. And then you ask yourself, is it is it ethical to have a placebo group? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one for sure. Right. Now, um, 
you mentioned that there have been two winners. Does that mean that there's no longer four and a half million in the prize fund, or how does that work? Is there so these were inaugural winners? They mm-hmm. didn't even know that they were uh, competing. Okay. But in order to have a prize, you have to have a valid goal line, and so that's that's uh, how we were able to set the the bar for first uh, winners. Okay. So uh, Dr. Barkey helpfully and coincidentally set our bar at just shy of five years for the uh, the uh, no-holds-barred, one-off, uh, long, longest Guinness Book of World Records mouse lifespan. Dr. Spindler <coughs> gave us the, uh, the uh, goal line for uh, rejuvenation of um, uh, a little bit more than three years. So the way... For, uh, so it's interesting most people who we allow people we encourage people to place their donations where they wish so they can for instance uh, donate to the longevity m prize or the rejuvenation m prize okay with less than a minute left uh, let's talk about how can people uh, support these efforts what uh, well they can go to mprize.org m P-R-I-Z-E dot org. Go and learn about our organization, and there's a donate button. And we have a group of uh, uh, individuals who are pretty staunch supporters. Uh, the group is called the 300, after the 300 Spartans of Thermopylae. Okay. And this is a group who, while society is trying to figure out whether or not this should be done, they have just said, yes, it should be done. And they donate... Um, the the criteria is a thousand dollars a year for twenty five years, i.e. twenty five thousand. So about twenty five percent of those individuals give the twenty five thousand at at the front right away, and then others are you know doing eighty five dollars a month um, off credit cards. And we have about one hundred and sixty individuals in that uh, in that committed giving group, and they're making a signal difference. If 100,000 people die a day from aging, which, by the way, is the number, the current number, then if we could, by means of the efforts of our donors, reduce that time, the time to the cure by one day, that's 100,000 lives saved. So if you think about the leverage and the prize, it's enormous and can make a huge difference to society and individuals. Okay, that web address again is mprize.org and Dave Goebel uh, I want to wish you continued success with your efforts we hope to have you back on the program again soon and uh, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today you're very welcome Phil thanks for the opportunity all right Phil he's an interesting guy isn't he well he is a fascinating guy and um, I should just uh, say why don't we open up the phone lines now if uh, folks want to comment, uh, this is Fast Forward Radio, and you can dial in at 347-215-8972. We're going to be talking for a while about uh, our interview with Dave Goebel. If others want to get in on the uh, in on the conversation, we'll we'll certainly make that possible. So, uh, Stephen, what struck you most about uh, what uh, Dave had to say? Well, the thing that strikes me about the whole endeavor is that if you accept that uh, that life extension is possible, that uh, it's possible to rejuvenate old people and make them young again. Then, 
it doesn't seem to me that there's too many really good arguments against doing it. Um, and, and it also strikes me that there's not too many other things that are more important than doing that. Um, right. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, you know, if you if you accept that this is that this can be done, then all of a sudden it becomes a tragedy that 100,000 people a day are dying of old age related things. That's right. There's there's a there's a huge shift in per, in perception that occurs when you go from thinking that this is just fate and there's nothing. There's no point worrying about it. There's no point gnashing our teeth over it to thinking, "Oh, well maybe we could actually do something about that." Once that little wedge of possibility gets in, uh, suddenly the, the the whole argument shifts. It seems. That's right. And uh and so yeah, I mean it, it's it's uh, it seems to me it's it's uh the most basic um uh, and, and and best of charities in some ways. Uh it's and, and some of the most important work if it can be done. And uh and it seems to me that there's a growing consensus that it's just an engineering problem. You know, um when when people first started talking about going to the moon, that sounded crazy uh, like crazy science fiction as well. But you know, it, it, it just it was just a matter of uh, solving some problems, and uh, I think that it, it comes down to that for a life extension as well. We have these difficult problems, and nobody are, nobody's saying that these that these problems that have to be solved uh, to give us life extension are going to be easy. Uh, but we have these problems. Uh, we believe we have them identified seven things and you just address these problems and uh and so i i, I love the idea of how the prize is you know, he, he's he's showing that the prize is is perhaps the best method to get it done well that's what really struck me and, and there's a couple of reasons why it's such a effective method to get it done one is it somehow just by virtue of the fact that it that it springs research activity into action lends credibility to the whole endeavor, which is, uh, I think, astounding in and of itself. But, but the, the, the bigger, um, I, I think, just more fundamental reason that these prizes are such a good way to go is because they get the money flowing in the right direction. It, right. Sounds, it sounds like if you've got a business, you know, he, he gave that example of the, you know, the company that makes its money selling insulin. Yeah. Mean, they, they, there is nothing in it for them for, for diabetes to be cured as an organization. They don't exist for diabetes to be cured. I mean, the people who work there might think that's a good idea, but the organization can't promote that because there's no money in it for them. But if you I think it's important we point out that neither Dave nor you nor I believe that there's a conspiracy. Oh, no, of course not. Um, and and there, it, Because there's not. There's just, it's just that these are normal, good people that are working in a system that there's no, there's not the, the incentive is not built in for them to do what we really need for them to do. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The, the 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 incentive is is instead for them to continue for the status quo to exist. Right. Uh, that, that that's 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 where the money that that's what the money encourages is for the status quo to continue to exist. And here what the money does is it encourages for it encourages a change to occur. That, I guess that's the that's the big difference. And that that I, I just found that a a profound insight. It had never occurred to me before. That and just the whole idea of how much research four million dollars worth of prize money gives you was right. Incredible. And, and, and you know, the, if, if you just went out and bought lab time with four million dollars, you, you wouldn't get as much research as they're actually getting. Right. 
Not nearly as much. They're getting 60, he said, to $200 million worth of research for $4 million uh, in prize money. The leverage is incredible. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the whole prize model is a neat thing, and, and that's why I'm, I've been fascinated about it for a while, you know, with the X Prize and, 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 and everything else. Uh, the, you know, the DARPA Grand Challenge, all, all these different prizes accomplish some remarkable things because yeah. of that leverage. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, the main thing I guess we have to say is that they're actually pushing these agen- these particular agendas ahead. Right. You know, XPRIZE actually uh, enabled Spaceship One to occur. The DARPA Grand Challenge is actually getting us closer and closer to a robotic, um, self self guided, self maintained vehicle. Right. But the other thing that, that that they're doing that you know we don't necessarily think about is that they're encouraging all this research to occur, that they're making it more mainstream. And that they're just sort of um, adding these ideas to the normal public discourse that weren't there before, and, and, and making the whole idea credible and respectable in the process. You know, in, in thinking about these ideas, and you know, getting it, getting past the whole far-fetched thing, you know, I, I, I got to thinking about the politics of it just a little bit, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, and and as I did, I I, I kind of laughed as I remembered a, a quote from one of my favorite movies, the great philosopher Bill Murray in Ghostbusters had a quote. This will explain it. Oh yeah, this will explain it. And so let me, I'm going to let him say it in his own words. But if I'm right, and we can stop this thing, Lenny, you will have saved the lives of millions. Of registered voters. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it comes down to that. You know, I mean, if we, if if you can convince politicians that there's a chance, you don't have to convince them that it's it's that it's absolutely going to happen. All you have to do is convince them there's a chance that they would be the big hero that saved the lives of millions of registered millions voters. Millions of registered voters. That's yeah. Exactly. The idea, the meme that we need to get into the heads of. Uh, of, of people on both sides of the aisle. And That's right. And, uh, yeah, and you don't want to be the party that was against it, you know, I mean, and, and, and then it happens, you know. Absolutely. So we need yeah. Republicans and Democrats both to, to accept the idea that it's a possibility, and then all of a sudden that changes the discourse. We need to be having those talks with the politicians for sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A couple of, a couple of additional notes on the on the interview. I kept referring to we had only seven minutes left in the show, a minute left in the show, only because uh, that was pre-recorded on the uh, sister program to Fast Forward Radio, which is better all the time, which we run sporadically uh, as a means of of capturing these uh, capturing these interviews with with folks. But that also brings up something that we should have mentioned, which is that we are now a featured podcast on Blog Talk Radio. That's right. Fast Forward Radio now is a featured podcast, and um, I think it helps that we have a regular time. Uh, people can count on us being here on Sunday nights and, uh, and you know, have something interesting to say every Sunday. So that's that's the, uh, that's kind of the, I think, what may have gotten us here. And I hope, I hope we uh, will continue to keep our feature status by having something interesting to say. Well, I hope so too. I think as long as we as long as we keep lining up guests like uh, Dave Goble, there shouldn't be any uh, any risk of uh, not having some interesting stuff to say. In addition to which, uh, I should also mention that we're going over just a little bit tonight. We uh, had uh, originally scheduled. A one, uh, I mean, we're, we're normally a one-hour show, but since Dave's interview ran a little long, we thought we'd tack a few extra minutes on in case uh, 
in case we wanted to talk a little bit about the interview. And I don't know if there were some other topics that we wanted to get into this evening. Well, um, I, I'm just thinking again about uh, Dave's uh, uh, interview. Um, Napoleon is a great benefactor of humanity. Who would have thought? Huh? That was great. <laughs> that is just a, a startling an, an idea. Well, that and and just the idea on its own that uh, canning was the great uh, the greatest invention in history. You know, yeah, it, yeah. When you think about it, you go, yeah, I can see, I can really see the case. But yeah. if somebody said, hey, what was the greatest invention in history? That's well, not the one you would think. Yeah, I would have. You know, I thought you know the last thousand years maybe the printing press. You know, so, something like that. I would would not have jump to canning but then when you think about all the people it saved yeah I, I, true. I can see you know uh that that's that's a huge deal um well it goes to show you that the obvious answer isn't always the the answer we we were having a discussion in the chat while we were talking about this and uh, in the in the chat the uh, fast forward radio chat room the question came up what's the biggest killer in the world uh, yeah and I, I thought it was malaria yep malaria is a is a good guess People uh, with a very U.S.-centric view are going to think it's heart disease or cancer because yeah. those are the ones that we, we pay a lot of attention to. If you broaden your perspective on the world a little bit, some people are going to say AIDS. If, uh, if you know the history of the devastation that malaria has caused over the last few decades, then malaria is a very good guess, but it's not, it's not by any stretch of the imagination the number one killer. And it's really surprising when you find out what the number one killer is. I, I actually had to look it up to... Uh, to confirm, because I had thought I had heard this a while back, and I wanted to make sure that it's the case. Number one killer. Any guesses? Well, if it's not malaria, I guess, and it's not AIDS, I, I would I would jump jump in and say tuberculosis. It's not. It's okay. diarrhea. Okay. The, the, the number one killer in the world between uh, uh, dysentery, and other forms of diarrhea, and cholera, um, that is the disease that uh, kills the most people in the world. Again, yeah, yeah I, I, you can quickly get in trouble and get dehydrated, I know, but that that's surprising. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it, it's not one you would think of, and it comes about through several different courses, uh, different ways of it occurring, so there's no big campaign to fight it. Yeah. And, of course, it largely happens to very poor people, uh, you know, and it doesn't get a lot of press coverage, and so that's that's not the thing that, that we think of. But, but when you think about it, that very much goes to um, why canning was such a great invention. Because when people are dying of dysentery, it's because of the lack of sanitation. It's because of the uh, the, the, the lack of basic hygiene and, and health care, the kind of thing that, uh, that that canning was intended to address. And just, I guess, goes to show that there's still plenty of room for improvement in this world in, in a lot of these areas. Um, I, just in research, uh, you know, I, after listening to the interview for the first time, I, I went to Wikipedia and was reading up on the March of Dimes. A little piece of trivia, just for the, our listeners out there, so they can win a Trivial Pursuit or whatever. Okay, what do you got for us? Okay. FDR's association with the March of Dimes is what led primarily to him being put on the dime. And so if anyone, wants, if anyone ever asks why FDR's picture is on the dime, now you know. See, I... I would have I would have framed that by asking someone who is on the dime because I would not have guessed uh, I, I didn't even realize it was uh, President Roosevelt who was on the dime so he it's his image that's on the dime right and the reason he's on the dime is because of the March of Dimes which he played such a crucial role in uh, bringing about. because of his own disease which may or may not have actually been polio so well now that's interesting I didn't yeah. realize that yeah it, it, what he what he had was a form of paralysis but it might. It, uh, there's there's no consensus at this point that it actually was polio. 
How about that? Interesting. I wonder who was on the uh, dime before Roosevelt. I don't know. See, now there. There you go. There's, there's a piece of trivia. Wait, I got another one. I got another trivia one for you. Okay. Eleanor Roosevelt. What was her maiden name? Hmm. It's another case where the, uh, the the obvious thing is hiding in plain sight. Um, shoot, I don't, I don't have any idea. Please, uh, her maiden name was Roosevelt. She was Teddy Roosevelt's niece and Franklin's uh, fifth cousin. So, interesting. How about that? Huh? There you go. Back See, this show is good for so much more <laughs> than just you know the. <laughs> you know, it's it's geekiness and 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 more. I yeah, I mean, we we always try to throw in a little extra, thing, just to give you reason for listening in. That's exactly right. And and speaking of that, I guess maybe we could uh, talk about what our what our music is this week. Okay, let's get to that. Um, we uh, as always, you know, we we like to uh, feature independent artists, and there's a reason for that. And one of the big things is, I don't know about you, Phil, but I get sick and tired of the top 40 stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, I... Well, it's like it's designed to make you tired of it. I don't know. It's just like it's the same junk all the time. And, over and over, yep. And even when it's a new song, it's the same style, or the, they're saying the same thing over and over. And and, and when you get into independent music, uh, that they, you know, they, they don't have the same constraints. And they can talk about all kinds of, you know... The subject matter of what they sing about is is wide open. Sometimes it's just weird, you know. I mean, and, and you know, something we could use more of on the radio is weirdness. I think so. And I mean, uh, we do our part for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and so, um, anyway, the, uh, the the song I picked for tonight is not a, not weird, but it's it's an upbeat tune. It's not what you hear on top forties uh, music at all. It's uh, it's 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 completely different. Andreas Weiss is the is the name of the uh, is the name of the the singer, and uh, his his song is Friday Night, and so we're going to get into that uh, here in just a minute. But anyway, it's been fun visiting with you tonight, Phil. Um, yeah, did, we didn't want to cover any other topics before we we logged off tonight. Well, um, we, we we had we had more we could do. I think maybe we'll just uh, we'll go ahead and uh, and uh, call it a night uh, for, for for this. Uh, edition, and we'll pick we'll pick up with the other topics next time. Oh, that sounds great. Okay, Good all on. right. We'll look forward to listening to. Uh, I'm sorry, it was Andre Weiss and Friday Night, and uh, look forward to uh, talking with you all again on the next Fast Forward Radio. Good night.
Welcome to Staples. Staples guy, my New Year's resolution is to get new customers in the door. Well, Staples has everything you need to promote your business. Signs, pens, mugs, you name it. Perfect. And right now, you can get 15% off custom banners and posters. 15% off? <laughs> That's one resolution off my list. Oh, how many were there? Just the one. Then, Happy New Year. This year, resolve to promote your business at Staples. And right now, get 15% off custom banners and posters. Staples, make more happen. Offer ends 324.17. See a Staples associate for details.